First Peter 1, verses 17 through 21. Scripture says, And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we ask you to open up your holy word to us today. May its truth shine before our minds with clarity and conviction. May your word instruct us, encourage us, and strengthen us for the race set before us. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. The Apostle Peter, who had been Jesus' right-hand man and the leader of the apostolic band, wrote this letter to a group of churches in present-day Turkey. Verse 1, he calls them the elect exiles. Other versions of our English Bible translations translate this word as sojourners or strangers or pilgrims. So all these words indicate that for Christians living in this human society, this world is not our permanent home, but we are here temporarily. We're passing through. Our final destination awaits the future when Christ returns to earth. So we should not be too attached to this world, but our hearts and minds should be set more on Christ, our Savior who is at the Father's right hand, and our minds set on the things of his holy kingdom. On the other hand, while we're only temporary residents here on earth, our residency here is crucially important. Everything about our lives is crucially important. It's important to us personally, to our families and friends. It's important to Christ's church. And it's important to God's purpose and God's glory. Christian believers have a high and holy calling. Not an easy calling. It's a calling, though, that has great value because in this calling from God, we have the opportunity to offer up our lives to someone, to something greater than ourselves, to the purpose and glory of God. The eternal God is great and glorious, majestic, beyond our ability to totally comprehend all that he is, but we little human beings down here on earth, we can do something with our lives to enhance his glory. We have a great calling. 
we can pray, O oh Lord, use me as an instrument of your glory here on the earth. You know, our own purpose for our lives is often very narrow perspective. Very short-sighted and lacking in connection to God's great plan of the ages. His plan is to call out a people for his own possession and for his own glory. But to be called by God into this kind of relationship with him and into this mission for our lives is a gracious gift that comes from God with blessings and benefits beyond what we could have ever imagined. Today, we want to carry on in the study of this letter to these Christian exiles, to these pilgrims, these strangers, and see what the Apostle Peter would teach us about the kind of life that we should live before the face of God. There's three major ideas that I have organized this passage into. And let's begin with verse 17. It says, And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So here's the first point. Conduct your lives in the fear of God. Conduct your lives in the fear of God. I'd say there's perhaps no greater attribute or personal characteristic that a person could have other than the fear of God in their lives. I don't necessarily mean terror or dread of God, but awesome respect for God. Yes, we should fear Him. We should fear His anger for sin. We should fear His judgment on sin. We should fear offending Him, displeasing Him, or grieving His Holy Spirit. Peter says, conduct yourselves with fear. Now, if I was counseling some person who was looking for a spouse, I would suggest to them that perhaps the most valuable trait they should look for is for someone who has the fear of God in their lives. Outward beauty will fade, but the fear of the Lord will carry a person well along this earthly journey all the days of his or her life. He says in verse 17, if you call on him as father. Now, a person who calls upon God as father is among the most blessed people on earth. Why is this? Well, it's because most people do not know God as their heavenly father. You see, if you call upon God as father. Conduct yourselves with fear. There's this if-then situation. If one thing is true, then a result should follow. If you call upon God as Father, conduct your lives in a certain way. Or, for example, at my job, if Mr. Jones becomes my new supervisor, 
I'm going to have to change my ways because he's very strict. I can't come in late anymore. I can't take so long at lunch break. My work habits are going to have to improve. If Mr. Jones becomes my supervisor, if God is my father, it's going to affect my life uh, in very profound ways. The call on God as Father means to have a relationship with Him. To call upon Him as a child would to his father or her father. To call upon Him in a time of need or a time of joy, a time of thanks, a time of just sharing events of life, a time of being in His presence, of asking Him to listen, maybe to my complaint or my confusion, or my adoration. So to call upon God as Father means to have a vital relationship with God. Jesus himself called upon his heavenly Father. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane before the cross, he he went and he fell on his face and he prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. To call upon God as Father means we also need to recognize the totality of His being, His other attributes. The Scripture goes on to describe God as Father. It says in verse 17, He's a Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. So He's not only the Heavenly Father of His people, but He's the judge of all the earth, of all the peoples of the earth. He's the judge of all things in heaven and earth. Now, he's not a judge who can be bribed like some of the judges here on earth. We can't just sweet talk him into accepting our own personal, selfish point of views. He will not compromise his standards of right and wrong. He's an impartial judge, the scripture says. He only judges according to the facts and only in accordance with his word. He judges all people equally. And if you call upon this God as your father, who is this impartial judge, it should have a radical effect on our lives. Peter tells these people, if this is true, if God is your father, conduct yourselves with fear. So we don't want to conduct ourselves in other behaviors or attitudes such as in, with pride or arrogance or self-sufficient independence where we don't need anybody's help or advice. We can do it all ourselves. But what we need more than anything else is the fear of God in our lives. That is living the totality of our lives in the awareness of God's presence, of his all-seeing eye, of his will. We need to fear offending him or running off and doing our own will and not consulting him as to his will. And it says in verse 17, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Well, we need to be consistent and steady in our Christian living. There's a long race ahead of us. If a runner has a 10,000 meter uh, race to run, 
he's not going to start out sprinting the first 100 yards. But he's going to pace himself so that he'll have energy at the end so then he can sprint to the finish. So we have to think about our lives and plan it and plan for the long haul so that we can endure the whole race and finish at the end. Well, Peter goes on in the next two verses, verse 18 and 19, he says, Call upon God as Father, conduct your lives with fear, knowing something, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So we need to know something. Peter said, you need to know these things. You need to know these facts. You need to know that you are ransomed with Christ's precious blood. There are certain spiritual realities in the Word of God that, that we need to know. We don't need to be ignorant of the Bible or of its teachings. We need to desire spiritual milk, but then we need to move on to the meat of God's Word. Now he says, know all this, that you were ransomed with Christ's precious blood. What does it mean to ransom? Well, it means to pay a price in order to obtain something of value. Sometimes uh, people have to pay a ransom to kidnappers to get their loved one back. Or where slave trade happens, sometimes uh, price has to be paid at the slave market to purchase someone to set them free. Prophet Hosea had to uh, ransom his wife. He had to pay for her at the slave market to get her back. So we need to be ransomed. Peter says we need to be set free from our futile ways, that is, empty, vain, useless way of living and thinking that was inherited from our forefathers. Now, if we inherit something, you don't work for it. Inheritance is like a gift. Just comes your way. Well, the feudal ways from our forefathers, we inherit these things. First of all, it goes back to the first forefather, which was Adam. We inherit Adam's sin and guilt, whether we like it or not, because we're members of the human race and he is our representative head. His guilt was credited to our account by God Almighty. And then these sinful nature and sinful habits were passed along through Adam's line to our own forefathers. And we grew up in the atmosphere of inherited and imputed or credited sin. But that's not the end of the story. Because Christ came to liberate us from the stronghold, the stranglehold of the sins of our ancestors and of our own sins. A costly price was paid, Peter said, to ransom you and ransom me from our sin and evil lives. It was a price that could not be paid with all the gold and silver of the world if you could all put it in one place. It would not be enough to pay for one small sin. 
one small white lie could not be paid for with all the gold and silver that exist on earth. But the blood of Christ is effective for washing away sin. He calls Jesus' blood precious. It's precious because it's the sinless Son of God's blood. He was the innocent one. Those lambs were slain at the temple every morning and evening. The book of Exodus, we see a description of these sacrificial lambs, Exodus 12, 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or the goats. It had to be an animal without blemish, no defects, a perfect sacrifice, which is a, a model, a type of Christ, the perfect man, the sinless man who would be offered in his blood shed. Because the eternal Son of God who dwelt in all eternity past in the bosom of the Father had to take upon himself our human nature. He took upon himself a real body in order to die for our sins. Had he not become a man, he could not have died in our place. And if the one who died on Calvary's cross was not God in the flesh, then his death could not have been the payment for the sins of God's people in every generation, from every nation, tribe, and tongue. If the one who died on the cross was only a man, and if he was not also God, his death could perhaps have paid for the sins of one man. For example, if a condemned criminal is sentenced to die on the gallows by hanging, but another man jumps up and says, let me take his place. Let me be hung instead of him. Perhaps the judge would allow that to happen. But then only one man escapes death. Such would be the case if Christ were only a man. But he was more than a man. He was God, so his shed blood was precious to remove the sins of millions of people throughout the ages. It had power. It had efficacy to pay the ransom price for our sins. You know, there's an old gospel song that says it like this. I had a debt I could not pay, but he paid a debt that he did not owe. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace, all day long, Christ Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay. Amen. So, Peter's telling us, number one here, conduct your lives in the fear of God. And number two, know that you were ransomed with Christ's precious blood. And he goes on in the next two verses. And he says, He, that is Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So here's the third point here. Through Christ, our faith and hope is in God. You see, our faith and hope is not just floating loosely around the world looking to see if it can uh, 
maybe somehow run in, bump into Jesus Christ and get connected to him. No, our salvation is linked. It's tied to a historical event that God brought about, that is the incarnation, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, the carpenter from Nazareth. It was not an accidental event of history, but it happened. It was not an accidental event. It just happened to somehow fall in place at the right time and the right place. No. The events of Jesus' entrance into the world were planned long before he came. Verse 20 says he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. The word foreknown means the same thing as foreordained. It was God's plan from before the creation of the world to send his son into the world to redeem his beloved people. Those whom God had foreknowledge of. You remember from verse 2, verse 2 says that we were, these exiles, these elect exiles were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And I tried to explain the meaning of that word. To foreknow in the scriptural meaning means to know ahead of time with love. You not only know somebody, but you know them with love. You set your love, your gracious mercy upon them. Well, it's the same word here. Christ was foreknown from before the foundation of the world. This word indicates that it's God's sovereignty, God's initiative in bringing salvation to those whom he set his love upon from before the creation. Well, God was not caught by surprise when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. In fact, it was there in the garden that he promised that a seed of the woman, a descendant of the woman, would crush the head of the serpent. And God was not surprised. He was not caught off guard when the whole human race became corrupt. When Cain killed Abel, during the days of Noah, all the peoples of the earth descended into sin. And so it says the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That is a terrible indictment against humanity. But it didn't catch God all by surprise. He knew this was going to happen and he planned <coughs> to bring a solution to the problem of sin. God was not going to let the deception of Satan, the weakness of our first parents, or humanity's descent into sin to thwart, to cancel, or disrupt his plan, his intention to save a great number of people out of a whole pool of humanity by the redemptive work of his Son, whom he sent from heaven. Even before the universe was ever created, ever before the first man had ever sinned, the coming of Christ his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension back to heaven were planned by God. And they were executed in the fullness of time. This is what it means. He was foreknown 
before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times. You see, this plan of salvation was in the mind of God, but then it was progressively revealed to humanity, specifically throughout the history of the Hebrew people, up until the first century when the Messiah arrived on the stage of human history to fulfill the ancient prophecies. At his birth, the angels declared from the skies, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Jesus entered his ministry, his public ministry about the age of 30. And then the plan of God became more and more manifested and revealed who he was. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He delivered people from demons. He did many other miracles. His words of teaching struck with divine authority, his compassion and care for the weak and wounded people had the fragrance of divine love. But it was his resurrection from the dead, his physical appearance to his disciples over 40 days that supremely testified that he was the Son of God who come to earth. Amen. For example, a cowboy who tames wild mustangs and makes that wild mustang rideable, it cannot be disputed that he's an able trainer of wild horses. And for a man to rise from the dead to conquer death, it cannot be denied that he is no ordinary man. For who can defeat death? Who has the power except God himself? God in the person of his Son did exactly this. The Son of God was made manifest. But it was not just some kind of general, nebulous, unclear manifestation. For anybody who may happen to be studying ancient Mideastern history, Peter says, in writing to these churches, Christ was manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Very specific. You all. When God sent His Son to the earth, He sent Him on a special mission. He had a definite end goal in mind. He sent Him to die, to rise, and to ascend for the elect people of God. For you, for the sake of you, Peter says. So, for the sake of you would include not only these people, but by implication all those who come to faith in Christ throughout the ages. God planned all this out. He executed it throughout the history of the Hebrew people, culminating in the arrival of Messiah for the sake of those whom he had loved from before the foundation of the world. Before Christ came to earth, he knew exactly who he was going to die for. He knew them by name. He knew about their sins. He knew the day and the hour of their salvation. He knew all about the circumstances of their lives. And he knew how he was going to use each one of us for his glory. Actually, that is the end goal of Christ's saving work. That God might be glorified. 
So you and I have a purpose in serving Jesus Christ. We have a purpose in life. It's to glorify God in our lives. Our lives do not belong to ourselves, but to our gracious God. To use us as he wants to. To bring glory to his name. Now it might be through suffering that he leads us. But our lives are for his glory. So what a high calling and privilege it is as Christian people that our little lives down here on this obscure planet in the solar system could be used to bring glory to his holy name. There's no greater calling in life than to be a vessel, an instrument. Human beings as we are in all of our weaknesses, failings, and sins, people that God can take and use us and get glory for himself through our lives. How can he do this? Well, it's because he's God. He became a man. He added humanity to his person so he could die for those who he had in mind and for whom he came to rescue. Verse 21 goes on to say, Who through him, that is who through Christ, are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Our third point here today is that through Christ, our faith and hope is in God. We did not become Christians in some kind of vacuum. That is, we didn't just decide one day, maybe as we were sitting or strolling around, that it would be nice to believe in a God. It would be nice to uh, believe in some kind of supreme being. So let's think up what kind of God would be here. A God. Maybe he'd be a God that sends rain. Or a God that gives us victory in battle. Or provides us with wealth. These are things that people throughout history have thought up as attributes of a God that they created in their own minds. But this is not how the gospel came. The gospel of Jesus Christ came to these people, these churches, through preachers, preachers who came north from Jerusalem to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. There was not some nebulous, cloudy, uh, hard-to-understand Savior that they were preaching about, but they were preaching about a Savior who had been predicted throughout the Old Testament by the prophets who appeared in human history and by many irrefutable proofs Prove that he was the very son of God. So they became believers in God through Jesus of Nazareth. No other way. This is true of all people everywhere. No one can, can become a believer in God, that is the true God, the creator God, except through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Now, Jesus is speaking the absolute truth there. There's no alternative. You can't get around that. 
You cannot be a true believer in the true God unless you come through Jesus Christ. Amen. Yeah. Now, people in the world don't like to hear that. You cannot come through Mohammed. You'll never get there through Mohammed. You can't go through the Hindu gods. You can't go through Joseph Smith or the Mormon religion. You can't go through the Watchtower Society of Jehovah's Witnesses. You cannot go through Ellen G. White of the Seventh-day Adventists. You have to come through Jesus Christ and Him alone if you would come to God. These people came to God through Jesus Christ. We have to call on Him to save us from our sins and to bring us into His eternal kingdom. The gospel is the same for all people in all cultures. The message is, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Verse 21 goes on to tell us why it's only through Christ that a person can be a believer in the true God. It's because there's a reason. Because God raised His Son from the dead. The resurrection from the dead is proof positive that Jesus is who He said He was, the Son of the living God who existed eternally with the Father and Spirit and was sent to earth to take upon Himself our full human nature except without sin. Peter had seen the risen Christ with his own eyes. In fact, he'd seen him on the day Jesus rose. And he saw him several other times. He sat with him. He touched him. He ate and drank with him. He heard Jesus teaching. Peter was an eyewitness of Christ's resurrection, and he knew full well that this was the Messiah long promised by the Old Testament prophets. And it, he is the cornerstone of the Christian faith. So Paul and Peter, both of them, they never tire of mentioning Jesus' resurrection from the dead. That was their lifeblood. The ground they were standing on. That Jesus rose from the dead. Peter understood this. And he arose and stood firm on this truth and he declared it all the days of his life until he too was crucified, according to Christian tradition. You see, this resurrection brought glory to God, to Christ. Christ was the victor over death, over sin, over Satan. Christ's power conquered all these evil powers and showed that he indeed is the invincible, all-conquering Son of God who came to undo and destroy all the evil forces aligned against God and His people. Where does that leave the people of God? The last phrase of verse 21 tells us, so that the result is your faith and hope are in God because of what Jesus did. These people, hope and faith, were no more in their pagan gods or in their own strengths, or wisdom, or in their family background, or in their political affiliation. Their hope and faith was in nothing else than in the living God, the Creator, Sustainer, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Their faith was not in the Emperor who sat in Rome, or the efficiency of the Roman government and their system of uh, Roman roads. Uh, their faith was not in the strength and skill of the Roman legions. Their faith was in the living God Himself as revealed through His Son. 
as the book of Hebrews says, He, that is Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. These people's hope was not in any power, any wisdom, any philosophy in the world, but their hope was in God. And their hope was based on a real historical event in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. None of the Greek and Roman gods had any grounding in history. They were all legends and myths made up out of the minds of men. Remember, perhaps, in 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Peter writes there, He, that is God, caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter cannot stop talking about the grounding of our faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, this is the ground of our hope in God and the ground of our hope in our own future resurrection at Christ's return. The hope and the faith that this gospel brought to these people compared to their former life was like the difference between darkness and light, between starving to death or banqueting on a rich meal, like the difference between drowning in quicksand or standing on a solid rock. The Messiah of the Hebrews had come. He lived, he died, he rose. And this was the foundation of the Christian faith. And so Peter preached, and so they believed. And so we hear today, and we believe. And here now, 2,000 years later, the baton of the Christian faith has been passed to us in 2023. This is our time. This is our moment on the stage of human history. So we've got to take up the baton that's passed to us and run hard to the finish line. Knowing that Jesus is beside us every step of the way. And in the end, we hope and pray, we trust that he will receive us and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. So let's conduct our lives in the fear of God, remembering that we were ransomed with Christ's precious blood, and that through Christ our faith and hope is in God, because God raised him from the dead. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Thank you for your word today. We pray that you would work its great truths into our understanding and in the continuing transformation of our lives so that in our frail bodies and lives we can reflect your glory and thus our lives will count for eternity. We ask it in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. We'll stand together, please, and sing this response to him. Your souls redeemed with blood.